thank you and honor you. And uh, frankly, I am excited about what you want to show us today from your word. Actually, from your lips, Jesus, to our ears. That you're going to not only remind us, but instill some new reasons in us of why we can trust you and your faithfulness and your confidence. That you will move way, make new ways and move mountains. As you teach us how to pray, by praying for some things that might surprise us. And Lord, I pray that you would, in fact, um, go deep into our hearts today with that confidence. That if there's anybody that comes in here with something that needs to be moved, there's someone here that isn't sure about the way, that you would make today the day when that is revealed to them, that at the very least, that you've got this, that there is a way and that you're working it out and you will make it possible. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would help us all to really hear what you have to say. The things that are familiar, that you would, we would hear them from your lips, not the teachers today that we would hear from your lips the reasons for the confidence and the things that are new, that you would make them go deep in our hearts to make us new. We thank you for the trust and the confidence we can have in you. It is in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. And mine may have a drink, excuse me. I uh, have this wonderful thing in my life now, I haven't had for a long time, named Little People. And every once in a while I get a cold. But I've never lost my voice, so be good. I apologize if my voice today makes you feel like you want to clear your throat. But, you know, if you can just listen, we'll, we'll be all right. And, and Brian will take some of that raspiness out, I'm sure. But um, just want to have a pastoral moment for a moment, uh, and just sort of a family moment, just to remind you of three or four things as we enter the season of... Um, you know, celebrating Jesus' death and resurrection and what it means. Uh, the first thing I want to say is, is sort of back up what Jordan was talking about in those frank cards and so forth and just how we're really making an effort now to connect. And, and there's a reason why we're doing it. We're not just a social club. We're, we're doing that because what we're going to find out today is Jesus really works in that, okay? So what I'm going to asking you to do is think about two words in the next two weeks, and that is invite and include. Invite and include. So invite people that are maybe on your frank list or people puts on your heart. Invite them in here. Uh, this year, uh, we're focusing on that. It's us inviting and so forth rather than mailings and stuff like that. And the second thing is include people. And when, when you get here, if you, don't need, you, if you don't know somebody, I mean, fact, find somebody you don't know because there's going to be some people here you don't know. And just introduce yourself. If you're not sure, just say, hey, have we met? And, uh, you know, they can remind you if you have and, and so forth and so on. It's not a big deal. And just make sure that you, you include, include, include uh, as much as you possibly can. Invite and, and include. Second thing I want to say is next week is Palm Sunday and then Easter after that, obviously. Palm Sunday, we're going to talk about the cross. And if you're a parent that likes to have your children or they like to be in here, I just want to let you know that next Sunday, it probably won't be PG-13. I'm not going to throw Mel, Mel Gibson's video up on the screen or anything like that. But you can't talk about the cross in an authentic way without having some graphic stuff in it, okay? So just want to let you know it's going to be at least PG, all right? And the third thing I want to talk about is uh, invite and include. Oh, yeah, I already said that. Fourth thing I want to talk about is invite and include. Oh, I said that too. Okay, so just remember, kind of pray, invite, include, okay? You know, little silly little thing. You'll remember that now, won't you? I hope. Um, 
but I want to start off uh, along those lines of, uh, you know, in terms of what is our relationship with God? That's what we're really talking about today because we're talking about prayer uh, and the prayer that Jesus specifically prayed. I want to show you a quote from someone who is, for me, one of the favorite quotables, and it's a guy named Winston Churchill. You've probably heard of him. He said this at the end of his life, when I look back on all these worries, I remember the story of the old man who said on his deathbed that he had had a lot of trouble in his life, most of which never happened. Right? I mean, it's just sort of the worries, all the worries we have. It's the two, th- two o'clock in the morning stuff that often never happens. But here's the thing. That's a good word and a good memory about worries. But there is some stuff that we worry about, some burdens that we have, let's put it that way, that does happen, right? What do you do with that? What do you do when you're in that situation? Because think of where we're at in the Bible right now, in the latter part of the book of John. What the disciples have done is they've been in the upper room with Jesus, and then he says, at the end of 14, come on, let's go. And they start walking across the city, and he's still teaching, he's still working with them, and he's still preparing them for what's going to happen the next day, and, and that night, actually. And so they're walking across the city, down through the Kidron Valley, to the bottom of the Mount of Olives, where Gethsemane is. And the f- disciples are, had to be starting to freak out. Because they sensed that something, you know, significant and not so pleasant was about to happen. And as Jesus is walking, he's still teaching them, he's still loving them, but what's crazy is he knows what's going to happen. He knows that the worst possible death that could possibly happen to a human being is going to happen to him in less than 24 hours. And so there is a real burden there, you know, in contrast to, to what Churchill is saying. There's a real burden there. You know, you, you begin to wonder, what do you do with that? Well, Jesus prays. And let me, let me just say this about that. There's been a, you know, discussion among Bible scholars for years, and almost century, going back centuries, about whether or not John wrote a different rendition of this, the Garden of Gethsemane because of this prayer in John 17. Whether John wrote a different rendition of what happened uh, in the... Garden of Gethsemane than the other uh, gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Because you know, it's a different prayer. It's not the same prayer of, as, um, you know, uh, let this cup pass from me, not your, my will, but your will be done, okay? It, it's a different prayer. He prays for different things. He prays for surprising things. But here's, here's why I think that debate is kind of nonsense. Because if you or I are facing something that Jesus knows that he's facing, wouldn't you pray more than once, Right? So Jesus, we're, we're going to look at, at Jesus' um, second prayer. He prays in the, uh, for the Lord's Supper. He prays as they're walking along, and then he prays in Gethsemane, which is the, the famous one that we'll, we'll look at uh, in, in, along the way as we go into Easter and so forth, of, you know, let this cup pass from me. But what that raises up is the question of, what is the purpose of prayer anyway? I mean, prayer is a very popular thing. Maybe you've seen it in the New York Times, in the Oregonian, because uh, every once in a while you'll see a story pop up, or in the cover of Time magazine even. You'll still see stories pop up about prayer, which begs the question, what is prayer and what is its purpose in the first place? Let me just throw up some common ideas uh, out there in the culture of what prayer actually is. And the reason I'm doing this is because sometimes if we're not careful, those ideas can kind of creep into our world, into, into church world, into Christian world, and we can start thinking these things. Maybe you've had some of these thoughts over time uh, about whether, and this is not an exhaustive list, but this is what a lot of people think prayer is. Let, let me show you four things. First one is, is to get what we want from God. Only problem with that is when it comes to Jesus, his next prayer is an epic fail, right? Because he doesn't get what he wants from God. 
And, and that seems kind of petty too, right? I mean, to get whatever I want from God. I mean, I'm not saying you shouldn't pray for that. I'm just saying, you know, if, if that's all it is, it sort of makes God a vending machine right there. Uh, it's sort of like gambling. It can't hurt anything. <laughs> Roll the dice and see what happens, right? Now, I might, might as well try it. A lot of people kind of have that sort of, you know, chance, risk, maybe something kind of thing. And another one, the other two kind of focus on ourselves. There are social benefits to praying, for people to see you as a together and praying and mindful person. I mean, that's still a part of the culture. Have you ever heard about this thing called mindfulness? Mindfulness is uh, sort of a big movement, and even in the upper echelons of the elites in America and so forth, it's a big, big deal. Just let me say this, and, and uh, you know, uh, if you've kind of encountered it or participated in it, I'm not looking at you because I have no idea, all right? It's based on Buddhism. In fact, it's based on crummy Buddhism because the Buddhists don't claim it because it's bad Buddhist theology. It's an Americanized form of Buddhism which says, empty your mind and find peace by just having happy thoughts ultimately. Only let happy thoughts in, right? Some people think that that's prayer. And, and people, they see people and they think, oh, they're praying people. Because, and, that, and that's a good mark, good mark for you socially, right? And, and, but that's, that's not what we're talking about when we talk about Christian prayer at all. You'll, you'll see that as we go on. But the final one is this. It's just a good thing for you to do for wellness. Sort of like right up there with eating your vegetables, right? Prayer is good for what it does for you, doggone it. And I like me. You know that kind of stuff? I mean, it's, it's that wellness. The problem is, is sooner or later in life, if you notice, we, I'm sure you've noticed, we reach situations, we confront moments where vegetables aren't going to do a picking bit of good. In fact, if that's what prayer is, that's why people say sometimes, I don't think prayer does anything, because they think that's what prayer is. So today we're going to look at the prayer of Jesus in the midst of the most difficult moment of his life, and we're going to examine, we're going to see, and we're going to hear from him, directly from him, of what this prayer means to him and who he's praying to and why he's praying this prayer, and we're going to find out the purpose of prayer, the, what his heart is. And not only that, we're going to find out how to pray from him in those moments. So open your Bibles to, to um, John chapter 17. If you don't have one, that's okay. We'll have it on the screen here. But in John chapter 17, we're going to go through the, the whole thing here, the whole chapter, because Jesus prays this chapter-long prayer that is so powerful because it points directly to the purpose of why God has given us this gift of prayer and invites us to interact with him this way. Start with verse 1. After Jesus had said this, all this teaching, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to those you have given him. Now this is eternal life. He's going to describe eternal life. Watch this. That they know you and that the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, let me just pause there for a second. Sent is the word apostello, which is the word we get apostle from, which means sent one. He's talking about that, 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 that he is sent from God. But look what he's sent to do. He's sent to give us eternal life. What's eternal life? It's not just life, the longevity of life after we die. It's not just the afterlife. It starts now because it says knowing God. What does that mean? It's not just mentally knowing about God. It's experiencing God here and now, that that's actually possible, that that's the gift that he came to give. 
Isn't that interesting? Keep that because you're going to need that filed away for, for later on. Verse 4, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Now, just look at what Jesus is praying about here. He's praying to the Father. It's in his most difficult moment. He's, he's saying, the hour has come. I know that. I recognize that. And then he says something interesting. He says, the work that you sent me to do, I have finished. Isn't that amazing? Because, I mean, he hasn't healed everybody. He hasn't saved everybody. Culture isn't getting better. It seems to be getting worse, right? And yet he's finished what the Father sent him to do. What does that mean? Well, first of all, it means our time here on earth is a gift from God. And secondly, that it is still God's time. And he doesn't ask us to be and do more than he has asked us to be and do, which causes us to maybe think that maybe we should look at some of our schedules and ask the question, who do you think you are, Jesus or something, right? Because God's only called you to do what he's called you to do, and we fill our lives with so many things that, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, you got to cut all a bunch of important things out of your life, certainly not people or whatever, but, I, but it, it, the reality is, is sometimes I think we think that we're better than Jesus on this. And he finished what he had been sent here to do in his 33 years or so of life on this earth. But he also says, the hour has come. He knew his moment, not just his cultural moment, but he knew the moment that he was alive. He knew that this was the time that God had placed him here for, which you could say about his life and our life every single day, that God has placed us in this hour, in this time, if you will, right? I want to read you a quote. Uh, from uh, one of my favorite authors, all right? As we think about how Jesus has prayed, he's praying in this most difficult moment for, he's, he's praying really big for the cultural moment or, the, or the, the, the time moment, that the historical moment that he is in. Do you ever pray for your historical moment? Well, I want to illustrate that historical moment by something that was written 100 years ago. Uh, it was written by one of my favorite authors, G.K. Chesterton. And what I want you to think about is that he wrote this, and it describes our moment in history in 2019 so well, but he wrote this 100 years ago. That's 100 years of saying, believe in yourself. 100 years where we've heard that phrase, you know, it's all about, you can do it. I believe I can fly. And God, God, and I like me. You know, that kind of stuff. I mean, hundred years of that that's brought us to what we talked about last week of this autonomous self. You know, most people believing that that's who we are. Look at what Chesterton said a hundred years ago. Man, that is generic man, men and women, has always lost his way. He has been a tramp ever since Eden, but he always knew or thought he knew what he was looking for. Every man has a house somewhere in the elaborate cosmos. We have a place to belong somewhere. The biggest crisis today uh, is, is, is loneliness or belonging. His house waits for him. The man has always been looking for that home. But in the bleak, blinding hail of skepticism or secularism, to which we, he has been now so long subjected, he has begun for the first time to be chilled not merely by his hopes, but in his desires. For the first time in history, he begins to really to doubt the object of his wanderings on the earth. He has always lost his way, but now he's lost his address. 
People have always lost their way since Eden. But now we don't even know what we're looking for anymore. And our desires for it have been tamped down. I guess this is all there is, one stupid thing after another. I guess that's it. People are starting to believe that kind of thing. And I, and I read that, and I, I bring that up, and I think Jesus is praying this because he prays, first of all, in his hour, as we should pray in our hour, for God's glory. In other words, for some good to happen in this time, in this moment. Not giving up the ghost, because everybody's giving, or giving up hope. Everybody's given up hope. We've lost our address as well as, you know, lost our way. And we don't even know if there's an address out there that we belong in anymore. And Jesus is saying, yes, you do. And he's saying, Father, show by your glory that you really are here, that there is a home for every person, that there is a home for, 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 for all people that, that I'm calling them to. You know, one of the times I, I first really ran across this and, and um, uh, that, that kind of stands out in terms of when I really learned this was when I, I, I got a doctor, it was a couple decades ago, uh, I, got a, uh, I went to doctoral school and it was on the East Coast. And in order to get this doctor, you had to fly to, um, uh, my, it was an extension school uh, on the East Coast in, in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I had to fly there once a year for two weeks uh, each time. And my first two weeks, I flew there just getting my feet on the ground, getting to know it. And uh, I got this call to come down to the lobby because this was before cell phones. That, oh, that shows you how late, how long goes. Uh, and so I'm standing in the lobby and I get the receptionist, uh, the person at the front desk gives me the, the phone and I hear Sharon on the other end. She says, Sharon tells me that one of my closest friends uh, here at Eastridge had just been diagnosed with a stage four brain tumor. Uh, uh, it was, it, I must have been shocked because the, uh, the receptionist said, can I help you with something? No, 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 that's no, okay. And uh, it just blew me away because, I mean, there was a budding friendship and he was so, you know, such a great guy and I was pretty sure he didn't even know the Lord yet. So I remember uh, going to my professor saying, I think maybe I'll go home. He says, no, I think you better stay and get this thing on the road. I called the church leaders. They said the same thing kind of frustrating, but I went home, or went back to the room in this shabby little hotel we were staying in, got on my knees uh, on the floor, uh, I say that because it's a shabby hotel and I'm a germ freak, but I got on the knees on the floor and prayed that night, God, I can't see anything good coming out of this. I was not praying a Jesus prayer at this point. I was pretty fried. How in the world could you bring anything? I'm just going to test it right now. Would you please show your glory by touching him, healing him, doing something, whatever it is? Amen. Don't maybe pray like that, although I think God can take it. But you know what? I didn't sleep well. Got up the next morning, called again. You know what I found out? That very night, my friend gave his life to Christ. And it wound up he did live another five to six years. In fact... He was so well-connected around this town, people were just blown away by the joy and the hope that this guy had after finding that Jesus wanted to be in his life and giving his life to Jesus. He started witnessing his brains out, pun intended. And it just all over the city, and it just amazing things happened. You know what? I think God did show his glory. And he did bring good at a horrific situation. 
And it doesn't have to be a horrific situation. I don't think Jesus is saying. He's saying, pray for whatever you're in in your moment. In fact, Jesus is so kind and so loving and so, so, so um, encouraging that he actually demonstrates for us how to pray in, in, in a long section. I'm going to read down to verse 19 now. Because he tells us how to pray in our cultural moment, in moments just like that. Okay? Let's look, look how he prays. He says, uh, in verse 6, he says, I have revealed you, the Father, to those whom you gave to me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words that you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty, look at that, they knew with certainty that I came from you, and that they believed that you sent me. I pray for them I am not praying for the world, not at this point anyway, which John uses the word world 18 times. He's referring it, he's using it um, to refer to the world that rejects God and will find their own way, thank you very much. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. The glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name, the name that you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. He's talking about the oneness of the Trinity. We'll get to that in a second. While I was with them, I protected them, and kept them safe by that name that which you gave me. None, none has been lost except the one doomed to destruction. We know who that is, Judas. So the scripture would be fulfilled. Verse 13, I am coming to you, uh, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. This is where you get the phrase, we are in the world but not of it. Watch this verse, because we're going to come back to it. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am uh, not of it. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word, Scripture, is truth. As you sent me into this world, I have sent them into the world. For them I, for them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Now, just, I want you to see two things here. Just look at the volume of what he's praying for the most. It's not himself. And secondly, look at three times he says, protect them, protect them, protect them, right? In other words, in his greatest hour of need, Jesus prays more for those who answer his call to follow him than he does for himself. Isn't that interesting? What's, what's he praying? Because he knows that they're going to need this. He knows that they need protection from something. And we find out it up in verse 15. He's saying, protect them from the evil one. And really what that means is from the schemes that the evil one has infested in this lost world, infested in this, on this globe, and, and, uh, in this place. You know, about, 100, about 200 years after John wrote this down, a little over 200 years, there was a, a church father named Augustine. Maybe you heard of him. And ever since then, Christians have sort of had this way of describing what sin does to a person. 
and what we need saving from that I think is probably still the best description of, of what that looks like and what that is. And uh, I'm not great in my Latin in terms of my pronunciation, but, but here's the phrase that Augustine came up with, and then Martin Luther, the reformer, came up, or, I mean, uh, gla- grabbed onto it uh, a little later. Here's what he says. Incurvatus in C. Incurvatus in C. That means twisted back on oneself. That's what sin does. It twists us back on ourselves. Now, think about in the context of what Jesus is demonstrating here. He's demonstrating by thinking in, the, in his greatest moment of need, thinking of others and thinking of God and praying about that. And I'm not saying you shouldn't pray for yourself. Not, and he's not saying that at all. Just saying that what sets us free from the incurvatus and see, the twisting back on ourselves, is an others-focused mindset. Thinking of others and, and praying for others isn't just something that's really nice and, and special. It's something that sets us free from the bonds that sin is trying to drive us. Remember, I've said it before, sin mercilessly drives us into ourselves. It's such a lonely, small little space. And the, the uh, corollary to that that is also true in terms of our experience is the self-righteous person, the person in themselves who has decided what's right and has, and has got it all figured out, the self-righteous person who believes they have peace with God in their own righteousness, they're believing a lie because that's what sin does. It's a lie. So the self-righteous person is the person who is the most utterly lost. The person who thinks my ideology trumps your ideology and so forth and so on. And I got this and I got The person who's stuck in that kind of mold, is curved in, twisted in, on themselves. And, and, and see, Luther himself, Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King, the, the first Martin Luther, said this in his, his lectures on Romans, his, his book that he wrote. He said, Scripture describes man as so curved in upon himself that he uses not only the physical, but even the spiritual goods of his, for his own purposes. That's kind of your creating your own self-righteousness even there. And in all things seeks only himself. You see, the point that I think Jesus is demonstrating is when you face those, those moments, face the thing that sets you free. You see, if God the Father, if, if God has got this, whatever this is, and he's got you and he's got me, then that means the best way to connect with him and the best way to connect with each other, even in our hour of needs, is to have that other focused and trust myself to God. You see? That's the opposite of the drive of sin. And so Jesus is trying to set us free and not allow ourselves to be so stuck in our lostness, which kind of begins to answer the question back in verse 15 again, why he says, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world. I didn't used to like that verse. Because I remember thinking at some point, particularly in my early walk with God, Jesus, I'm telling you, I want you to take me out of this world. I need a miracle now, right? And then what else is prayer for, after all? Right? I mean, he says, I'm not saying to take him out. And everything in us says, yes, please take us out. And I'm not saying that that's a bad prayer. I'm not saying anything. I'm not saying that, you know, you're guilty of some sin or something. For If you've ever prayed, you know, I really need a miracle now. But what I'm saying is, 
is that it's interesting that Jesus prays, don't take them out of the world. In fact, he, what he's saying is, I'm expecting some discomfort for them. And I would just say this. I want to be careful here. Especially in this town and in this hour, this moment in history, if you at some point do not feel at least some pushback, feel at least some discomfort for believing what you believe as a Christian, if you are, and following him, if you don't experience any of that discomfort, then something probably isn't right back there somewhere. Because that's the nature of it. Here's the news. Newsflash. If you're a Christian, I'm sorry nobody told you about this before you prayed the prayer. But you're supposed to be abnormal. You're an odd duck. Right? And that's not all bad. You're, you're different than others. It's, it's the same thing that James says. Jesus' brother in the book of James, first chapter, opening paragraphs of his open letter to Christians says, count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you experience trials and temptations and pushback. Pushback's my word. Yeah? Why? Because it shows you're really his. You're authentic. It's just like you're, it's just like you're being just like Jesus. And he's saying, that authenticates what you believe. It authenticates all the things you're, you're praying about. It authenticates who you're praying to. And look, actually, in that light, look at who Jesus speaks of next. Watch this. See if you can figure this out. Verse 20, my prayer is not for them alone, also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, as you and I are one, you and me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. In other words, did you, did you see who he's praying for there in verse 20? Did you see you? Because you're in there. He's praying for us. He's praying for you and me. You know why we know that? Because uh, you know, this was you know, first written down in Greek language. You know that and so forth and so on. Greek, can, you can do stuff you can't do in English. It's, it's a much cooler language in, in that way. Um, and, and what this is, is when it says will believe, when it, when it says um, those who will believe because of these disciples and what they're about to do, when he says that, that's a present tense word, but it's used as a future. Will believe. In other words, it's not just a future, it's a durative present. In other words, it goes on in duration into the future for 2,000 years right up to 2019. So Jesus is praying not just that one time, but he continues to pray for us. In fact, Romans says the Spirit of God prays with groans too deep for words. In other words, we can't even understand his prayers because he understands what we really need more than we don't. And he goes right to the Father, hey, they need this. Hey, they need that. Hey, we need to show your glory here. In, in words that we can't even understand. How about that? That's the kind of praying that Jesus is doing here that just goes on and on and on. But look what he's praying. He's praying that they may be one, that somehow there's this, this power in the Trinity that brings Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together as one. It's a mysterious thing. We can't all kind of figure it out, you know. And if, if you're a person who's got to have everything lined up, no, you know, you probably struggle with the, with the Trinity. But there is a power there that's a mystery to us as human beings that binds them all together. And what Jesus is saying is it's possible for you and I together and with God 
to have that same binding power exercised in our lives. It's called oneness. It starts in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Genesis. Oneness, oneness, oneness. It's all through the Bible. And Jesus here describes it as unity among us, but he's saying that kind of oneness is possible. That, that God can, can use in a church, for example. He can use not just the, the staff or the people that stand up front, but he can use the people in the seats at just the same level, at just the most powerful way possible. I remember when I was a, a young pastor, I was in my mid-20s. I'm not in my mid-20s anymore, or 30s, or 40s, and we're going to stop right there, turn your brain off. But um, I, was, I was in Alberta, Canada, and we're in this little dinky town in uh, 500 people, and I was kind of still cutting my teeth on what it means to be a pastor. That's probably a bad illustration. But anyway, um, as they said, somebody said, you know, my grandfather or my uncle, I can't remember who it was, is in the hospital about 90 miles away. Would you go see him? Because, you know, his terminal. And um, I said, sure. I went up there, and it was bad in, in the hospital. I won't describe what, what I saw. But um, I said to this man, I said, uh, I'd like to pray for you. And he said to me, don't bother, kid. Prayer doesn't work. Just don't bother. And I said something really awkward. See, I was just learning how to be a pastor. I said something like awkward like, okay, I'm going to pray for you anyway, okay, like right here, uh, because if you're wrong, you've got a lot to lose. And if I'm wrong, you got nothing to lose, so I'm going to pray, okay? And so I did. Got back home, and that week somebody told me, hey, I heard from so-and-so that you went and saw their, their grandfather, and, and he gave his life to Christ. I said, ah, yeah, really? Oh, that's good. Because I didn't see that, all right? But then he died a couple weeks later. And after that, I found out that someone else who had battled the same kind of cancer and been in life and death situation went to visit him, and they prayed with him, and he said, yeah, I think I'm ready to receive Christ. And he gave his heart to the Lord. Isn't that interesting? It wasn't the pastor. It was some other Christian from the, from the body. After that, I just started tooting that person's horn. But what Jesus is saying is that's the kind of thing. I can work in a unified way. I can do in a, in a, in a oneness kind of way through all of you. And, and that's the kind of oneness that, you know, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it, that's one God working together in three persons, We're, uh, impacting the world together in three persons, all right? And, and that's what Jesus uh, is praying for. In, in Jesus' greatest hour of need, he prays for you and me that that would happen for us. And here's the thing. From that story, uh, what I learned is that there is a natural bond. There's a natural bond between people who've gone through similar situations. Your family may be in crisis or in a situation, family and friends don't know what to say, and all of a sudden in, in the room walks, not a pastor, but somebody who's been through a similar thing, and God's gotten them through. Made a way, moved a mountain like we prayed, or like we sang and prayed. You know, and everything, God just does something that, that wouldn't have happened otherwise, Right? In fact, look at how Jesus sort of lands this in verse 23. I and them and you and me so that we, they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world, there it is again, will know that you sent me 
and have loved them even as I have loved you. See, what's interesting about this is did you see how Jesus just handed the keys to the people out there that aren't Christians yet to judge us on whether or not we're authentic yet based on whether or not we're unified? And not only that, to judge whether he is for real based on whether or not we are exemplifying that kind of unity. And that kind of oneness, that kind of care for one another, okay? You see, the thing is, here's the contrast, all right? This is what makes your abnormality, your oddness, I talked about a few moments ago, desirable for other people. There's a good news on the end of this story. This world that John uses 18 times is constantly trying to blow people apart, not bring them together. Have you noticed that? There's no other philosophy, ideology, theology, uh, worldview in the world that brings people together like what Jesus is praying for right here, what Christianity does. I mean, you got politics, they got two parties. I know there's a bazillion more than that, but two real parties. And they're just parroting whatever the party says they're supposed to parrot for their party. They're having a little private party. There's, there's you know, Islamo-fascism. Uh, there's, you know, Islamic radicalism. They're trying to make everybody the same by killing off everybody that's not. There's um, cultural forces put it that way. Trying to make everybody say the same, believe the same, and if you don't, man, especially morally, mm, something wrong with you, you know, and, and we've got to stop you. We've got to cut that out. We've got to, to knock that off. Always trying to blow people apart, and yet what Jesus is saying, no, no, I came here to bring about oneness. I, I came here to, to, to make the power of God in himself evident through people's lives, human beings' lives. Look at that. You see what happens when Christians act that way, when we love one another as he's loved us, and, and this oneness starts to happen. People look at you and go, you really are abnormal, but I kind of like it. How did you get that way? Because, you know, in this world that's so lost, and, you know, people get sick and tired of being sick and tired and being blown this way and that way and just in their own little autonomous unit. You see, that's why it's so profound for our moment that Jesus is praying in his hour of greatest need. Jesus prays big for our effectiveness in living out that good news. Isn't that interesting? But that that would happen in our time and just as it would happen in their time. And I'm going to say one more thing about this. Um, and I want you to listen up because I don't want to be misunderestimated, okay? Um, if you look at the world today, I've seen this as a, a pastor over the years, okay? This is my experience. I've talked to others about it, and I think it's, I think it's true. If you look at the, the, where the secular world is going at the moment, and, and if you're here, uh, I'm going to say something in a little bit. If you're here and you're not a Christian and so forth, we're so glad you're here. We built this place for you. I'm not dissing you in any way. I'm talking about the cultural moment that we live in. Um, in, this, in this secular moment that we're living in, true secularists, our strugglers in the church are better off than people who are out there in the secular world that are doing okay. Our strugglers are even better off. Why? It's because of this. It's because we're not, 
saying that we have to pull it all off. We don't know, we, we don't know everything. We're not, we don't, but we're just saying we know somebody who does. Somebody who is. And, 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 and the reality is, is that that's what actually pulls us together. The more and more crazy that gets, the more and more oneness can be expressed in a contrast. I remember talking to my friend and mentor a couple of years ago, a year and a half ago or so, uh, Jim Houston, and I, I was talking to him about his life in Oxford back in the 40s and 50s, and the amazing turmoil post-World War II that was going on in that culture in England at the time, and um, before he moved over here to, to uh, Canada. And and I said, how did you guys function in all the turmoil after the war and, and so forth? And, you know, Christianity was being put down by every little ideology and so forth, kind of like this. And he goes, well, you know, I have to say that, you know, we had all different kinds of people. I said, well, I know. You had, you had Catholics. You had Anglicans. You had uh, brethren like you. You had evangelicals. You had so forth and so on. And, and yet you banded together. He says, you know what I think it was? I think it was the secularism of the world that drove us together. And it actually had the opposite effect that was intended. And it actually was used by God for good things. I said, well, I should say, all of you guys that came out of there that are writing the books that we're reading now to understand what it means to be a Christian. And I think that's the kind of oneness and the power that he is talking about. Look at what he's, how he kind of wraps this all up and, and, and ties it all up in the beginning of verse 24. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory and the glory that you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Pre-existent Jesus. In other words, I am God. I'm part of the Trinity. 100% God, 100% human being. 25. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love that you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. You see, clearly when he talks about this love that is in them and then in us, God's love that God has in us, he's telling us the purpose of prayer, clearly. Do you take that, that verse? And you take the rest of what Jesus has been saying as they've been walking, remain in me, stay in me, relate to me, we find out exactly the main purpose of prayer. doesn't mean we don't ask God for stuff, which you certainly do, but the main purpose of prayer is relating to God, is experiencing Jesus today, tomorrow, and the next day. And a yes answer from God or a no answer from God will not change that. It doesn't matter. God can work through both answers. I mean, it matters in terms of what we hope will happen. There's nothing wrong with that. But what, in Jesus' case, he's just about to illustrate for us that God can move powerfully, powerfully, powerfully. Think about when Jesus prays, not, the, not, not my will, but your will be done. You know, please remove this cup from me. Please, please, please. And, and God doesn't remove the cup. He gets the biggest no, an epic no of all time. And yet, he also gets the most powerful smack on the devil of all time. He also gets the, the most powerful outcome of all time. And the most amazing thing happens, even though he doesn't get a yes, he still ultimately gets the best possible thing. And, and that's what Jesus is saying here. I want, my, I want you to relate to me in this way, and that's what's going to make all the difference in the world. 
I want to transform your abnormality into something that is really desirable for people that see you together. And so the point of freedom in our lives together is this others focused. If God's got this, if Jesus has got this, he's got it for you, whatever this is, and got it for me, then this other focus on each other is really the place to set us free because the world doesn't revolve around us. The world isn't on our shoulders. And thank God for that because God in Jesus is, is illustrating us here. He wants us to have his glory in our life regardless of what the answers to our prayers are. And he wants to relate to us and he wants us to know him, not just in our, about him in our brains. He wants us to know him personally. You know, this is interesting how this plays out in the Bible. I just want to pull out one, one scene, one situation. A couple of months later, after Jesus taught this, dies on the cross, rises from the dead, and then ascends into heaven. The disciples are, are, are working in Jerusalem, and thousands of people are coming to know Jesus, and the, the, the Sanhedrin, is the, the council, the, the religious and cultural elites are telling them to shut up about Jesus. Sorry if I used the word that's not supposed to be used, but that's what they're telling them. Um, and and uh, he... So Peter and John go to the temple. They're still worshiping at the temple. They're worshiping Jesus, but they're going there honoring the Old Testament because they still, you know, understand the, what, what the Old Testament does and it was from God and so forth. But they're going to the temple to pray, and they see this guy that's lame, and they heal him, and Peter does, and in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk, and the guy does, and he starts skipping, I can walk, I can walk. It turns the temple mount into chaos. Everybody's going, did you see that? That's amazing. And Peter, being a preacher, just like me, if it's in here, it's coming out here, he starts preaching. He starts saying, see, the reason this happened is because of Jesus, whom you just killed, right? And people are just responding and come, coming in. And, you know, the, again, the elites just don't like this. So they grab those two, and they take them off to their council meeting. So you need to shut up. And you know, what does Peter do? If it's in here, it's coming out here. You guys need to be saved, you know? You, there's only one name by whom you need to be saved, and it's not Moses, it's Jesus. You know, you know, but in the midst of all that, there's something that happens in these, some of these council members. And this is sort of a, a verse for our church that we've used again and again. But I want you to see what it says. Look what it says, Acts 4.13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, they hadn't been brainwashed by stuff yet. They, they had no idea what they're talking about. Ordinary men... They were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. If prayer is relating with Jesus, what he's offering us by illustrating this, by praying the way he's praying, is that. The people will notice, oh, wait a minute, those guys have been with Jesus. It also illustrates something that it took me a while to learn. I, I went back uh, a while. I, I was uh, doing prayer seminars around the western United States from Illinois to the west coast. Uh, it just happened to turn out that way. Two to, two to three times a year I would go to churches most years and teach on prayer on the weekend. And uh, one thing I noticed there, I'm not about the churches, just the people in them, but I, I met lovely people, but I, I, I noticed it in myself too, is we really don't honor prayer as the gift that it is. I mean, it's more than just, hey, if you need something, ask me. It's so much more than even something that's a beautiful thing. It's, it's something that's mysterious, just like the oneness within the Trinity. It's actually sacred, which is a definition, the definition of the main lead word of sacred, 
is mysterious. It's something we can't explain, but it's a gift from God that is so sacred it's just been handed to us that we can relate to him on a daily, everyday basis, that we can remain in him, that we can experience him here, now, eternal life starting now. See, that's the wonder of what what prayer is. I, I, don't, I don't know if you know this, but your staff reads books together. And I love books. I really do. But I can't keep, take any credit for this book. I didn't know this book existed, the one they're reading now, until Danae told me a couple weeks ago. Okay? But it's uh, by one of my authors that I really appreciate. His name's Francis Chan. He wrote a book called Letters to the Church. Look what he says about this whole business of the sacredness of our relationship with God and the prayer that we can do, have and experience with him. Or worship, which is another way of praying, right? The early church didn't need the energetic music, great videos, attractive leaders. Oh, thank God for that. Um, Or elaborate lighting to be excited about being a part of God's body. The pure gospel was enough to put them in a place of awe. Aren't you at least a little bit embarrassed that you need the extra stuff? It's not all your fault. For decades, church leaders like myself, and I would include myself, have lost sight of the powerful mystery inherent in the church. In all honesty, we have trained you to become addicted to lesser things. I don't want to do that anymore. I want us to be addicted to God's greater, more glorious, sacred, mysterious things. Because that's what Jesus is praying will happen in us as he brings oneness and the presence of himself into our lives. You bring this all together, I just want to give you two last thoughts before we leave. The first one is, it has to do with preparation, and then I just want to remind you of something. The preparation uh, is this. God may be preparing you to do ministry that someone who stands up front here is not going to be doing. Okay? In fact, to illustrate this, I just want to talk to anybody here who might be here. We always have people here who aren't Jesus people yet, who aren't church people yet. You haven't, you know, you don't know what to make of Jesus yet and so forth. Whatever you want to call it, that's fine. We built this place for you. We are so glad you're here. But what I want to tell you is that what Jesus is saying and what we want to tell you today is that there are actually people like us who are so fanatical about Jesus that we actually believe what he said. That we actually believe this is possible. And we, we actually trying to invest ourselves in that by talking to him every day. You know, hopefully not while we're walking down the street and bumping into you, but, but we do. I mean, hopefully maybe in our minds, but maybe not out loud there. But, but we are those kind of people. And, 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 and don't be surprised then if, again, you're in a difficult moment or, or uh, you know, something crazy has happened or you got a decision to make, and someone comes to you, and you know, you know they're part of this church, and um, that something happens that happened for New Testament people. They maybe walk up and they say, you know what, um, what you're going through is not my business, but I've been thinking of you, and I actually, I believe in prayer, so I've been praying for you. And you know what, Dwayne is a pretty decent talker up front, but he hasn't experienced what I've experienced. Let me tell you about my sorrow, my hard decision, my life-threatening situation my epic fail, my sinful lifestyle that just about killed me. Okay? Let me talk about that. Let me tell you about that. And then they say something like, can I just tell you what Jesus did for me? 
That's the power behind this kind of prayer that Jesus is talking about. Now back to the rest of us, back to those of us who are Jesus followers, and uh, let me just say this to you. There are people that you will encounter that you are being prepared for right now. There are people you will encounter whom Jesus has equipped you to pray for and reach better than anyone else. And, that, and we've all got that. We've all got that possibility. And because of that, one more thing to remember as the band comes out here. Because of Jesus, when you pray for the people in lost world, those prayers have a global reach. I remember hearing from Randy Alcorn once uh, a few years ago about visiting with Bill Bright just before he died when Bill Bright was on his deathbed in the hospital. And Bill Bright said, this is the greatest time of my entire life. And Randy says, well, what are you talking about? You're, you can't even hardly move. He goes, no, I'm praying all day long and stuff's happening all over the globe. <laughs> That's real. That's what I'm saying. Those prayers have a global reach and they are even unbound by time and will have a powerful effect, not because of who we are, but because of who He is. So yeah, start praying as we enter this season of remembering and honoring Jesus' death and resurrection. And it's going to be a great season. Start inviting and including. And start praying for those people whom God brings to mind, whom you just may be especially equipped and prepared to pray for. Let's pray together. And if you have something you need to talk to God about or a burden or something, you, you just do it right here because it'll all work together and go to Him. Heavenly Father, I thank You so much for sending Your Son, not only for dying for us, which is stunning, and rising from the dead, which is almost incomprehensible, but giving us the way to know You right now, every day, and experience You in this thing called prayer that gets thrown into so many buckets, we forget how, what an amazing, sacred thing it is. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for teaching us to pray by simply doing it right in front of us. Thank you for being here today. And I pray that if there is anyone here who needs the way opened up or the mountains moved, that that will happen for them. But I pray that all of us will experience you in a way that we will rise above whatever answers we get because it's about you more than it's about the answers and you have our good and our hope and our peace with you in mind all the time. Thank you, Lord Jesus. It's because of you that we're here. We love you. Amen.